Thanks. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm part of our preaching team. Uh, I want to show you a picture of some guys that I think are really big. These are big, strong, buff guys. Both have a, a background in professional wrestling. The one you might know from some movies or from if you're a wrestling fan is John Cena. I mean, look at that guy. Right? Like if that guy walked in here, you'd go, wow, he's huge, right? And then another guy, by the way, I think this guy will be president someday, uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Someday he's going to run and he's going to win. I think that's going to happen. These are two pretty big guys, right? Like, like you wouldn't want to have to, you know, scrap with these fellas, right? These guys are big. But I want to show you someone who's bigger. Take a look. That, friends, is Shaquille O'Neal, one of the best NBA centers of all time, who makes John Cena and Dwayne The Rock Johnson look like absolute miniature people. <laughs> I mean, it, isn't that just stunning? I mean, those guys are humongous and like little, little Dwayne Johnson there between Charles Barkley and Shaq. It's like, oh, The Rock, you're so cute. He's like the pebble, right? The pebble, Dwayne the Pebble Johnson compared to... Uh, to Shaquille O'Neal, right? And, and a lot of times we, we go through life and it's like, man, this is a big deal. And you got to always go, well, compared to what? Right? Something might be big, but is there something that's actually even bigger? And here's the big idea of today's sermon in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, is that sin is big, but Jesus is bigger. Sin's a big deal. Sin is John Cena, Dwayne The Rock Johnson big. It is not anything to mess around with. It's not anything to minimize. We have to take it really seriously because sin is big. But the good news today is that uh, Jesus is the Shaquille O'Neal compared to the Rock Johnson of sin. He's bigger. He dwarfs it and he overcomes it. And so that's what we're going to look at here today. This is week two of our series in 1 John. We're going to go through 1 John over the course of the summer. John, this, this letter was written by the Apostle John, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He also wrote the book of Revelation, which we're going to be studying later this fall. Uh, by the way, if you want just a little preview on the book of Revelation, Seth had a great conversation with a, a scholar from town, uh, John Del Husse. He's an elder at Redemption Alhambra on our King and Culture podcast. They had about an hour and a half conversation exploring the book of Revelation. If you want to start getting ready for that in the fall, you can check that out. Uh, but all of that stuff is written by the Apostle John. The Apostle John in the Gospel of John is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus had his 70, he had his 12, he had the three, but John seems to have an extra close relationship with him. During the life of Jesus, John was probably a teenager, and now he's writing as an older man. He's looking back. He's been through trials. He's been through trauma. He's seen his brother killed for the faith. He saw Jesus crucified. He's seen the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And he's trying to talk to a fragile, doubting, deconstructing church and say, hey, hold on. Hey, don't give up. Watch out for the sin that's going to that's gonna sidetrack you, but also just keep your eyes on Jesus. Last week we began it by looking at three lies and the truth, the, the lies of posturing and minimizing and arrival, these ways that we downplay sin and act like it's no big deal compared to the truth that we were called to in the first chapter of First John, which is to walk in consistent obedience, confessing sin, and if we do that, we'll stay connected with God and our sins will be cleansed, we'll have forgiveness and we'll have fellowship, that's what we looked at last week. Now today we begin chapter two and there's a sweet shift in tone just even in the first few verses or first few words of the, of the first verse of chapter two. Notice this where he says, my little children, my little children. 
Here it's like he's, he's kind of, you know when you talk to a, a child and you kind of get down at their eye level? He says, my dear children. Now you do that sometimes when you have something really important to say. And so the shift in tone is to say, hey, there's something really important. Here's what I want you to see. Sin is big. You got to watch out for it. But remember that Jesus is bigger. It's a sweet tone before something really big. So let's pray, and then we'll look at these two verses together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for how it encourages us when we're fragile, when we're doubting, when we're weary, when we're wondering if you're as good as you actually are. God, we pray today that you would send your spirit through your word to allow us to see the danger of sin, to try to avoid it, But Lord, when we don't avoid it, to find ourselves finding comfort and rest and blessing and strength through Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you have your Bible, you're going to want this. You're going to want to follow along here. There's Bibles in the seats in front of you. You can open up to your Bible app. Uh, 1 John is towards the end of the book, uh, of the whole Bible, so you can find it there. Um, But we're going to look first at the idea that sin is big. Sin is big. I want to look at sin is, is big under, under three headings. The first is that sin is menacing. Look at what it says in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's saying, I don't want you to sin. Little children, I love you. I care about you. I don't want you to sin. Now, he doesn't explain the menacing nature of sin in this verse, but he does in the rest of the book. Look at what he said. Uh, how he, look at these pictures of sin. In verse 6, we see that sin is dark. Uh, verse 6, I'm sorry, of chapter 1. He said, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. He says sin is, sin is walking in the darkness. It's dangerous, right? There's a reason why, uh, ladies, when you uh, have to be somewhere at night, you walk with your keys stuck between your fingers and your bottle of uh, mace because the darkness is dangerous. He's saying walking in sin is, is dangerous. It's, it's darkness. It's also dirty. Look at verse, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of, his Je- son, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And then again in verse 9, it says that he will cleanse us from our sin. So if, if we, our sin needs to be cleansed, then not only is sin dark, but sin is dirty. It's staining. It sticks to us. It's grimy, right? Sin is menacing. It's trouble. It's bad. You don't want it. It's dark. It's dirty. It's also diabolical. Look to chapter 3, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8. You're going to have to swipe a couple times to the right there, maybe on your phone. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, it says in chapter 3, verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So when you're sinning, you're actually aligning yourself, not in your head, not in your, like, the loyalty oath you would take, but in your actual behavior. You and I, when we sin, we're not only walking in the darkness, we're not only staining ourselves with the dirtiness of sin, but we're actually aligning ourselves with the devil. It's diabolical. Making a practice of sinning is of the devil. This is menacing. You should be nervous to sin. 
A lot of us, we've just made peace with it. Like, well, yeah, you know, I mean, everybody does it. And we believe the doctrine of total depravity. Like, everybody sins everywhere, so it's not that surprising. Eh, whatever. He's saying, I'm writing these things to you, little children, verse 1, so that you may not sin. I don't want you to sin, he's saying. Watch out for this. You know, it's interesting, uh, some scholars studied lots of different people groups all over the world to try to figure out what are, the, what are the things that everybody in the world has in common. One of the things they found was that a worldwide fear, again, this isn't every single person, but this is people everywhere, have a worldwide fear of snakes. P- part of me wonders, is that because of the Garden of Eden? Like... I mean, even you read chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Genesis, and it's like everything is orderly and everything is good. Then you turn to chapter 3, and now there's a talking serpent. Like, if you had never read it before, you'd be like, wait a second. This is crazy. Why why is there a talking serpent? That's nuts. Here's why. Because sin is crazy. It's nuts. It doesn't make sense. It's dirty, it's dark, it's diabolical, it's a menace. We should watch out for sin. Sin is big and it's menacing. We see, secondly, that sin is big and that it's damnable. It's damnable. It's worthy of our damnation. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. Now we'll explain more later what propitiation means, but it means deserving of it, it means absorbing wrath. In other words, our sin is damnable. It deserves wrath. It deserves God's anger. It deserves God's hatred. Now, we've got to think about that. Okay, what is God's wrath? Here's a definition, simple definition of God's wrath. God's wrath is his intense hatred for all sin. His intense hatred for all sin. And the Bible over and over speaks of the wrath of God. The same author, John, in his gospel, John 3.36, he says this, whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Romans chapter one, Paul picks up this idea. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He says this in Colossians 3. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God. God's intense hatred for all sin. Uh, Moms, you might know what wrath feels like. Uh, dads, you too. But uh, Molly and I, we talk about how there's these moments, especially with our younger kids, when you're walking through the, the parking lot to get back to your car or to head into the store, and someone comes tearing around the corner like a little too quick for a parking lot. And it's like a little scary. Molly has, she, she, her phrase for it is, it's insta-fury. <laughs> right? Like lightning bolts are shooting out of her eyeballs and, if possible, her hands, like towards these people, right? Like it is just, she doesn't have to think about it. It is just a hatred for something that is potentially going to ruin her kids. God's the same way. Think about this. What if we had a God who didn't hate sin? What if God didn't hate sin, right? We, like on, on one hand we go, ah, the wrath of God, that sounds so mean and that sounds so upset and that sounds intense hatred. Ooh, I don't, I don't want a God who's intensely hating stuff. Really? So you want a God who, who looks at injustice, who looks at selfishness, who looks at cruelty, who looks at hatred, who looks at greed, who looks at sexual exploitation, 
You, you want a God who looks at all that and is like, meh, whatever, go ahead. Or you want a God who's like, uh, I actually kind of like that stuff. No, you want a God who hates sin. Right? If, if we had a God who didn't intensely hate sin, if we did, had a God with no wrath, who either delighted in sin or was meh about sin, here's the thing, we'd also have no hope for justice. Because if you look around, you see a lot of injustice in the world, you see a lot of sin in the world that appears to be going unpunished. It doesn't it? I mean, you kind of look around and you see all these people exploiting and hurting and being cruel and starting wars and on and on. I, I don't need to list all the things. You look at all the things and you're like, God, where are you? God, are you going to do something? No one's doing anything. Here's our hope for that, is that there is a God of wrath. Sin is damnable. It deserves God's wrath. It deserves God's intense hatred. It deserves God's judgment. And actually, it's interesting. If you look at the people, uh, the Christian tradition of, of nonviolence, it is rooted in a confidence that we don't need to retaliate because God will in the end. Miroslav Volf was this uh, theologian and, and thinker who was Croatian, who experienced all the horrors of the Yugoslavian war. And he said, my only hope to be nonviolent and forgiving toward these people is to know that God in the end is going to punish sin. Sin is menacing. Sin is damnable. Third, this big sin is global. It's global. Look at what it says in verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, sin is spreaded globally. Isn't it interesting? It's not like, well, here's the one nationality who sins. Well, here's the one nation state who sins. Well, here's the one people group who sins. No, no, no. People sin everywhere. Sin is a problem everywhere. It is global. It is part of the human condition. It said this in Genesis chapter 6, right before the flood, that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. <laughs> Look at that last part of that sentence. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Why was there a flood? Because of that. Why did God pour out his wrath against sin? Because of that. Now, what happened? Did it get rid of sin? No, it was like when you mow over a weed the weed is just going to grow back. And now you look around at our world without God, and here's what you see. Every intention, the thoughts of our hearts, without God, only evil continually. Psalm 14, the psalmist says this, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men. So not just at Israel, but people all over the world, the children of man, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Sin is big, it's menacing, it's damnable, it's global. If sin were blue, friends, we'd all be Smurfs. <laughs> it's a big deal. And it's everywhere and it's pervasive. And so John's saying, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. And so I want to encourage us, Redemption Gateway, to have a week where we take seriously that we might actually try to not sin. Like, like why just say, well, it's just the way I am. Well, you know, I struggle with, are you struggling? Like that's what John's saying, I want you to struggle. 
I want you to see this is dangerous. This is menacing. This is damnable. This, this makes God angry when we sin. This is all over the world. This has to be dealt with. Something must be done. And, and it, we're going to talk about what God did to do something about it. But I want to encourage us who follow Jesus to take John's word seriously. To take obedience seriously. To take faithfulness seriously. And here's why. Because just like Molly has insta-fury when something is threatening her children, God is angry at sin because it's threatening you. It's ruining you. When God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. Don't ruin yourself. Don't sin because there's a better way. That's what he's saying. Sin is big. But here's the good news this morning. But Jesus is bigger. But Jesus is bigger. Man, what a stunning look at the bigness of Jesus. So just like we looked at sin under three headings, we look at the bigness of Jesus under three headings. First, Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is our advocate. Look at what it says. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. An advocate is someone who acts as a spokesperson or a representative of someone else. Someone's policy, someone's purposes, just someone as a person. Uh, now, this, this particular word... it. In, in, in Greek literature, it refers to someone who's associated with, uh, with court cases, but not necessarily always the lawyer, sometimes just a friend who, who is advocating, someone who is, who is speaking on behalf, right? Here's one way to think about it. Some of you have someone in your life who is a constant critic of you. They're constantly telling you what a problem you are, how stupid you are, how could you do that? Sometimes it might be a parent, Sometimes it might be an in-law. Most often it's yourself. So some of you, you know that constant critic. You can't ever please them. You can't ever make them happy. They're always going to point out what you did wrong. Now here's the thing. Imagine the opposite. That's an advocate. An advocate is someone who's going to speak up, someone who's going to come to your defense, someone who's going to explain, someone who's going to intervene on your behalf. Not to condemn you, but to exonerate you. Right? Uh, Matthew Brazelton, one of our pastors here, uh, he often is playing the role of advocate for me, even when I don't want it. Like we will, uh, we'll be out, you know, to lunch. And one of the ways that I, you know, build endearing relationships with people is through some light teasing. You know, so I'll tease the server and, you know, not mean, but like kind of just playing around. But he can't handle, he can't handle it. And his dad was a lawyer, so he understands advocacy. And, and he'll make sure to explain to the server. Now, he doesn't really mean that. He's just kidding. Uh, he, you know, and I'm like, Matthew, you're ruining the fun. Like, <laughs> but what Matthew's doing, he, he's not even waiting for me to need it. He's just advocating. Right? P praise God, Jesus is our advocate. He's stepping in. He's stepping forward. He's, yes, he's like legal counsel, but he's also like a faithful, loyal friend who's just saying, I, I want to intervene. Because this is what he's saying. I don't want you to sin, but if anyone does, here's the good news. When sin gets you, when the menace of sin, when the danger of sin gets you, here's the good news. We have an advocate. Someone who's going to step forward. Someone who's going to intervene. Someone who's going to speak on our behalf. Here's the second way that Jesus is bigger, is Jesus is righteous. Jesus is righteous. Verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You know, lots of kings and queens throughout history have had really great titles, 
William the Conqueror in England, and Germany had Leopold the Fair, and Constantine the Great in the great uh, Roman Empire, and Richard the Lionheart, and Suleiman the Magnificent. You know, there's also some pretty funny titles of, uh, of uh, different royalty. Donald Trump wasn't the first, people, per- first person to come up with nicknames for p- p- politicians, okay? There was Vlad the Impaler in Romania. He's the grandson of uh, Count Dracula. He liked to impale people, so that's, I guess, how you get that. Uh, there, there was Sebastian the Asleep of Portugal, right? Before there was Sleepy Joe, there was Sebastian the Asleep. <laughs> Same idea. There was a Vilo the Cabbage from Bulgaria. Apparently, he ate a lot of cabbage. I don't, like, I don't know if he just smelled like cabbage all the time, or I don't, I don't know if he got that. There was Olaf the Quiet. How many of you wish you had living in your home, and Olaf the Quiet. Like, wouldn't that be something? And then in France, there was Isabella the She-Wolf. Isabella the She-Wolf. There's these names. Who are you? What, what identifies you? What's the, what's the main thing you think of when you think of that person? That's their brand. That's their identity. That's their reputation. William the Conqueror, Constantine the Great, Suleiman the Magnificent, Jesus Christ the Righteous. Isn't that good in verse 1? Jesus Christ the righteous. What a title. By the way, Christ is not his last name. That's his title. Christ means Messiah. Jesus the Messiah, the righteous. Jesus Christ the righteous. This word righteous is the same word that was used up in chapter 1, verse 9, translated as just. There it said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This word righteous or just, it means to be upright. It means to be ideal. Now, this is important if you have Jesus also as your advocate. Think about this. In a trial, when, when lawyers are contemplating, should we call this witness? What, what's the main thing they're asking? Is this witness credible? Or are there going to be all these holes in their story? Are there going to be all these holes in their character? Is there things in their past that are not going to line up? And it's going to actually make us lose credibility with the jury. Right? If you want an advocate, if you want a witness, if you want someone to step in, they need to be credible. Well, our advocate is Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ the just, the upright, the ideal. Amen. And this is amazing because it is the one who is righteous who now stands in the presence of God to speak on behalf of those who are not us. Sin is big, but Jesus is bigger. He's the advocate. He's righteous. And finally, he's our propitiation. Our propitiation. This is a big word. We're going to explain it here in a moment. But this is what he says in verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So a propitiation, let's define that word. I want to make sure everyone understands. I, I don't assume whether you're a church person or you're brand new to this that you've ever heard that word. So here's what it is. A propitiation is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end and in so doing changes God's wrath toward us into favor. Let me read that again. A sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end and in so doing changes God's wrath toward us into favor. In other words, the best, simplest way to think of propitiation is it means wrath absorber. Uh, Perhaps you've heard or 
the story of, or you've seen famous pictures of Benjamin Franklin with the kite and the key and that whole thing. You're going, what was he doing? Well, he was trying to discern some stuff related to electricity. And actually, it turns out that Benjamin Franklin was the one who invented what we know as the lightning rod. In those days, you would have lightning strike a home and the thing would burn to the ground. And so he figured out a way that you could get this piece of iron and you could put it on top of your house and then you could wire it outside the house and ground it in the ground and the lightning could strike that and keep the, the lightning from burning the house down. The wrath of the sky from destroying you. The lightning rod is the propitiation, right? The wrath of God, the insta-fury, the shooting lightning bolts of God's wrath is absorbed by Jesus. That's the good news of this. We have an advocate. He's also righteous. He's also the one who's absorbing God's wrath on our behalf. He is the propitiation for our sins. And I love that definition because it says not only does he do that, but he then changes God's wrath into God's favor. Right? Imagine if you had a lightning rod that didn't just absorb the power of that electricity, but then it could actually use it to power your house. That's the kind of propitiation Jesus is. That it's this death of Christ that not just forgives our sin, but connects us with God and fills us with the Spirit and sends us out to accomplish God's purposes in the world. He's the propitiation for our sins. But it continues, and and, and this starts to raise a question. Like, what what does this mean? Here's how it continues. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Huh, what does that mean? Because we're going, okay, he's a propitiation. He's absorbing the wrath of God that our sins deserve, but not just for us, but also for the sins of the whole world. What does that mean? In what sense is Jesus the propitiation for the sins of the whole world? Well, there's been different ways that people have tried to think about this and make sense of that verse. It's kind of a challenging verse. One idea is uh, maybe this means that every single individual is saved. Maybe, okay, if Jesus is the absorber of the wrath of God, not just for us, but for, every, for the whole world, well, then that must mean every person ever is saved and there's a kind of universal salvation and we do not believe that. That is not even what John believes because he's going to say in chapter 5, verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And again, back in his gospel, he says whoever believes in the Son of God has life. Whoever does not believe, the wrath of God remains on him. Okay, so the wrath of God can't remain on a person for whom Jesus already absorbed it. So it can't be that. It can't be, and the Bible all over the place talks about people who reject Christ and go into eternal separation from God, go into hell, go into damnation, experience the wrath of God, not absorbed for them through Jesus, but themselves. So it can't mean that. Okay, the next way people try to think about it is, okay, well, maybe what that means is that Jesus died to make salvation possible for everybody, but then actualized for the people who really believe. So... He, it's kind of this, it's sort of this blank check and some people can cash it in and some people don't. Here's the problem with that. If that's true, then it would mean that some of the blood of Jesus was wasted. I, 
That seems like a problem. Okay, so it doesn't mean every individual is saved. What does it mean? Well, I think actually this verse, when you compare it to another verse that has almost the exact same structure, here's what you see, is what this means is that Jesus' death was for people all over the world. Sin is global. It's a global problem. It affects people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And therefore, Jesus' wrath-absorbing power is not for the Jews only, but it's for people from all over the world. So he's not saying every individual without exception. He's saying for every kind of person without distinction. So that's what he's talking about. Let, let me show this to you. And uh, I, I'm going to use the touch screen to do this because I think it's, it's helpful to, to be able to actually see this. Uh, in John chapter 11... Again, same author, right? So when we're comparing like tough verses like this, you, one of the good Bible study habits is to go, is there any other place where this author wrote something that sounds kind of like this? Yes, there is. It's John chapter 11, verses 51 and 52. And look at the sentence structure and how similar it is to the sentence structure here of verse 2. This is talking about there was a high priest who uh, had prophesied, and here was his prophecy, that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Okay, so this high priest, again, he wasn't even believing in Jesus. He was just saying, hey, I think what's going to happen is that if we kill Jesus, he's, it's going to be experienced that he's dying for the nation, but not just for the nation, for people all over the whole world. So that's how he does it. Now, look at this. He is the propitiation for our sins, right? What is this? He died for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see it? So that's where we get the idea that verse two is not talking about that Jesus has died to make universalism the truth. No, you need to believe in Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus, you will not be saved. If you don't believe in Jesus, the wrath of God remains on you. Sin is menacing, sin is damnable, sin is global, but Jesus is bigger, he's an advocate. He's righteous, he's the propitiation, and he's offering himself to anyone who would ever believe, and he actually on the cross saves you. Get this quote, I love this from Kevin DeYoung. The cross doesn't make us savable, it makes us saved. Jesus' blood, every drop of it worked. He saved his people from their sins. That's what, that's what the angel said to Joseph. Joseph, call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He didn't kind of save people who might actualize it later. No, he really saved his people. Jesus is bigger. And I love how these things work together. His advocacy, his righteousness, his propitiation. Think about this. Jesus couldn't advocate if he wasn't also our propitiation, our wrath absorber. Because if you just advocate, well, someone still has to pay the penalty. Well, he, so, so Jesus can't advocate if he's not the propitiation. And if he's not the propitiation, or if, if he's the propitiation, it only matters if he's righteous. Because otherwise he's got to absorb his own sin. But his advocacy matters because he's willing to actually not just speak words, 
but do the action to save us. And he can do that because he's truly righteous. Stunning. Sin is big. It's menacing. It's damnable. It's global. But Jesus is our righteous, wrath-absorbing advocate. Amen. Amen.